Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today, Peter Galbraith, helped uncover and confront two genocides. As a staffer in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in the 1980s, Peter compiled evidence of Saddam Hussein's genocide against the Kurdish people. Later, as the United States ambassador to Croatia in the 1990s, he used his position to call for more forceful intervention on behalf of besieged populations in the Balkans. We discuss both these events, plus what it was like to be born the son of one of the 20th century's most celebrated public intellectuals and liberal icons, John Kenneth Galbraith. Peter recently wrote a piece in the New York Review of Books about how the Trump administration is approaching the Kurdish situation. In it, he describes some recent events in the Kurdish region, including the Iraqi government's decision to forcefully and violently respond to an independence referendum in the region. This leads to an extended conversation that includes stories from Peter's nearly 35-year engagement with Kurdish politics. I think you will agree it is riveting and interesting stuff. We also discuss Peter's time in the Balkans and the unique way he sought to draw attention to ongoing mass atrocities there. This is a great conversation. I think you'll very much like it. was glad to have Peter Galbraith on the show. Special thanks to his brother, the economist James Galbraith, for putting us in touch and now here is my conversation with Peter Galbraith. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Uh, Najmuldin Karim is the governor of Kirkuk. Kirkuk is a um, city in Iraq. Uh, it is has a Kurdish majority, but also significant Arab, Christian, and uh, Turkmen populations. Uh, and it has, is disputed between the Kurdistan region, which is the part of Iraq that is uh, self-governing and recognized under the Iraqi constitution, and the rest of Iraq, and it was meant to be settled by having a referendum to be held by December 31st, 2007, which the Iraqi government never actually held. It's both the city and the surrounding province. In the elections for the the people to run the province, the governor at uh, council, uh, it has a Kurdish majority because they're, the majority of the population is But a Kurds. significant minority of, of other uh, uh, But significant right. minorities of the, the others, exactly right. The other important thing to know about Kirkuk is that it sits atop uh, one of the world's largest uh, oil fields, uh, one that has been in continuous production since 1932. Anyhow, uh, Najbuddin Karim was elected governor actually twice. Uh, he was uh, considered a very effective governor, both in negotiating for the province to get a share of the oil revenues for development and maintaining order and uh, uh, also uh, for uh, running a very honest administration. That, in fact, not only represented the Kurds, but the other communities. But he also is a, a longtime supporter of Kurdistan's independence. And in, on September 25th uh, of this year, Iraqi Kurdistan had a referendum on independence. Uh, Najmuldin Karim was a, a big supporter of the referendum. And as a result, the Iraqi prime minister uh, got the parliament to dismiss him as governor, although it has no authority to dismiss a uh, governor, and Iraq has a very decentralized uh, constitution. So he remained as governor uh, because the Kurds, uh, the Kurdish Peshmerga controlled Kirkuk. How it is that the Kurdish Peshmerga controlled Kirkuk is another part of the story, uh, because uh, uh, it, it, the, in 2003, the Kurds had taken Kirkuk, which they had always aspired to have. 
but the Americans had asked them to give it up, so they did. Uh, the Iraqis were there, uh, uh, and then in 2014, uh, the uh, general in charge of the division that was defending Kirkuk came to Najmuldin Karim uh, one day in June and said, oh, we're going to defend Kirkuk. Uh, 24 hours later, he was back in Karim's office uh, asking for mm -hmm. civilian clothes and uh, this was as uh, ISIS was was, uh, this was sweeping ISIS its way through the country and had already probably it, it, taken Mosul at that point. It, exactly. I mean, it was uh, even though uh, the division he had outnumbered the ISIS attackers and was better equipped, but he yeah. just ran. So and that's what happened Kurds, in, in other big cities as it, well, but not they, not they, to Kirkuk, right? That the same story. But in Kirkuk, there were also uh, a brigade of Kurdish Peshmerga. So a brigade would be about one third the force. And they defended Kirkuk, so ISIS never took it. Uh, but now, uh, the uh, Iraqi army, having been reconstituted by the uh, U.S. military, uh, and then the uh, Shiite militias, who were created in 2014 uh, basically by Iran, uh, they've, they've become quite formidable, both in the, particularly the Shia militias, both in numbers uh, and in effectiveness. Because unlike the Iraqi army, they're homogeneous, they have the sort of religious motivation, and uh, they're effectively commanded by Iran. So having eliminated uh, ISIS from the last pocket near Kirkuk, a place called Hawija, uh, they were supposed to turn to Anbar in the far west, and, but instead they moved to attack Kirkuk. And so and, what uh, happened on October 16th? Uh, so on October 16th, the uh, attack on Kirkuk began. Uh, the, their American special forces that were uh, embedded both with the Iraqi army and with the Kurdish Peshmerga who were in Kirkuk. And so the Americans knew in advance about the attack, although they kept uh, the Trump administration kept insisting that uh, the Iraqi forces were not going to attack Kirkuk, but they were going to head west to Anbar. The, the troops on the ground knew, so presumably their higher ups knew, uh, and they went. They found Dr. Kareem in his office, uh, uh, the Governor Kareem, and uh, they warned him that uh, th that the Shia militias were coming to get him. Uh, and uh, Najmuldin Kareem knew that they weren't just coming to remove him as governor or even to arrest him; that they intended to kill him. Uh, and so he managed to escape, uh, uh, eventually ending up in Erbil, the capital of uh, Iraqi Kurdistan. Um, but the interesting thing is that two of the people who are leading the attack on Kirkuk, uh, one is a fellow named Abu uh, Mahdi Muhandis, uh, and he's actually the deputy commander of the Shia militias, mm -hmm. uh, which are known as the Popular Mobilization Forces. Uh, the interesting thing about him from an American perspective is that in, he was sentenced to death in absentia in Kuwait after being convicted for blowing up the American embassy in Kuwait in 1983. And another of Shia militia commanders uh, who was coming for Dr. Kareem was Qais um, uh, al-Khazali. And he, he was responsible for kidnapping and executing in cold blood four Marines near Karbala in 2007. Both of these people are committed terrorists, considered terrorists by the United States. And yet, they had sophisticated American weapons, including M1 tanks, mm -hmm. uh, and they were able a, to pursue. Because they were, in this instance, acting in support of the Iraqi army, which the U.S. government was was backing. That, well, the U.S. U.S. government's been supplying the Iraqi army. Mm -hmm. The Iraqi army has been giving its equipment to the Shiite militias. Uh, the U.S. government has never objected, even though these militias are not regular military forces, even though they were created by Iran. Mm -hmm. And even though they're effectively controlled by Iran. Uh, and, and so you had this situation, right, where you had one U.S.-backed force, the Peshmerga in Kirkuk with uh, Governor Karim and another U.S.-backed force, the Iraqi army with those popular, with those Shiite militias uh, in tow, sort of gunning for each other. Yes, uh, although uh, to describe them both as American-backed uh, slightly is slightly misleading because of the case of the Peshmerga. Uh, the Kurdish Peshmerga, you have a force that was completely loyal to the United States uh, and which was the only force to resist ISIS in 2014. If it wasn't for the Peshmerga, ISIS certainly would have conquered all of north of Iraq uh, and which was key to the U.S.-led military campaign to defeat ISIS 
And then on the other hand, you had the Iraqi army, which was had collapsed in a stunning display of cowardice and uh, Iranian-backed Shia militias. Uh, and yet uh, the United States has been unwilling to supply the Kurds with things like the M1 tank and has been willing to supply the Iraqi army uh, and has never, the Trump administration never said a word when Iraq allowed these weapons to be used by the Shiite militias. And no, they never said anything. Of course, they never took any action to stop it. Um, so uh, what you what you have is a situation in which the United States um, has basically been on the same side as Iran and 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 uh, and while it talks about waging a war against terrorists, has been allowing terrorists to use American weapons against people who were our most loyal friends in the Middle East. So what do the prospects of uh, Kurdish independence uh, look like today? You know, we're, we're speaking uh, about, you know, a month, six weeks after the referendum and, you know, several weeks after that battle over Kirkuk. Where are we today? Well, uh, I think the important point to understand is that uh, the, the Kurds uh, were included in Iraq against their will 99 years ago. Uh, they have always uh, aspired for independence. They've been in a, a state of rebellion uh, uh, almost continually against Iraq. They've been self-governing and de facto independent since 1991 uh, when there was an uprising and, and the U.S. came in and created a safe area. They had they under the Iraqi constitution, they've been basically de facto independent. And so uh, in 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 this year, uh, they decide that they'll go ahead and have a referendum to allow the people to vote on independence, um, to make a what is a was a binding decision on the Kurdistan uh, uh, government that they would be obligated to follow through. And and the election, which I was a witness, uh, was really quite extraordinary uh, because here you have Iraq, the most violent one of the most violent places in the world. Uh, you had a completely peaceful election, very well organized, uh, in which uh, there was a very large turnout, uh, and the people voted 93% for independence. Uh, and and you know, and, and it was very moving to see people there. Uh, women were dressed in their their finest clothes. It seemed almost everybody brought their children. Again, dressed in traditional Kurdish clothes, or these very pretty uh, little dresses with sequins that that Kurdish women wear. Uh, uh, just so that they could say they was there, were there for the birth of their country. Um, and, you know, my, my belief is that when you have people in a geographically defined area who overwhelmingly don't want to be part of a state, and they overwhelmingly don't want to be part of Iraq, you can't keep them in the country uh, forever. Uh, even if you use brute force, think of, of Stalin with the Baltic republics. Yes, that works for a time. But only for a time, sooner or later, Kurdistan will become independent because there's no chance that it could be reconciled to Iraq. Um, the uh, one of my uh, friends, I must say, who's like so many people, uh, only discovered Iraq recently. That is to say, uh, post 2003, uh, uh, and, and my experience goes back to the early 80s. But this this fellow, who's a retired American diplomat, he wrote that. Younger Kurds uh, have no sense of being Iraqi because they, you know, they've been separate yeah. from Iraq for 26 years. They don't speak Arabic. Uh, uh, but as I wrote to him, I said, yes, and, and older Kurds also don't want to be Iraqi because they've had the experience of being part of Iraq, which has included uh, the destruction of all the villages of Kurdistan, which is something I was an eyewitness to in the mm -hmm. 87, uh, the use of chemical weapons where I led a mission that documented it, yeah. uh, uh, and, the, and the you know rounding up and killing of about 5% of the population. So, and, and then what's happened since October 16th, I mean, it happened on October 16th, and there was, you know, um, although most of the Kurdish Peshmerga withdrew, a, a faction of them fought. There were casualties. The Iraqis then advanced north. Uh, there were more fighting, uh, more casualties. There have been the burning of Kurdish homes in the areas where they've taken, uh, where the Iraqis have moved in. And so you know, there really isn't a possibility of reconciliation. Uh, so uh, my guess is that for the time being, you know the the, the prospects of, of Kurdistan's independence is uh, it's certainly not immediate, uh, but and because Kurdistan has been much weakened, it doesn't have its um, uh, main oil reserves, which was in Kirkuk. 
its its territory is much less. But the the sense of alienation, which was already great, is if anything greater. So and and it remains self governing in in a in a smaller area. So mm-hmm. uh, sooner or later, I think independence will happen. Uh, and, and the one the the thing about Iraq is. Um, uh, it, there's, it has almost a hundred percent record of, of screwing up. So, uh, <laughs> Iraqi policy. Body, yeah. That's funny. It, it just doesn't, yeah. it, it's never done this the right way. Yeah. So a body, uh, who, you know, the U S thought of as, as a moderate, both mm-hmm. the Obama and the Trump. He was the previous, uh, prime minister, we should say. No, he, or, he's the current one. Oh, the current one. The Heide, previous one is not yeah, yeah, yeah. He replaced Nouri al-Maliki. Right, right. But Abadi, he's you know he's a, a diminutive guy. He speaks fluent English, um, uh, uh, and so you know. And and we always have a preference for people who speak English. Uh, and so he he you know he we we embraced him as somebody who is uh, a more moderate and and independent and Western oriented. But in, in overlooking the fact that he's from exactly the same Shiite religious party uh, as his predecessor Maliki and the one before that Jaffrey. Uh, uh, you know, and, and his behavior has been basically the, with the same authoritarian style as uh, other Iraqi leaders. And that's pretty evident in the, the attack on Kirkuk and, and what's followed since. Um, so uh, uh, we, 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 the U.S. has an unfailing ability to try to, to, to make every, every issue about a single individual. You know, we need to stand with Gorbachev. We need to stand with... Uh, uh, with now with a body, but uh, it, it turns out um, investing in individuals is not always a, a, a formula for success. Um, so I, I would love to to learn a little bit more uh, about your background and how you first got involved in the Kurdish issue. You said that um, you had you know that that you had been focused on this since the 1980s. What was your entry point to to uh, sort of the Kurdish issue. I mean, I've been reading you on this stuff for, for years. Um, and I just kind of curious to learn how you first got interested and involved in this issue. Well, uh, as with most things that uh, will change your life, there's always an element of chance. Uh, but, um, I was working for the, uh, uh, foreign relations committee of the U S Senate. And part of my portfolio was to handle the near East and South Asia. Uh, and I, I wanted, you know, wanted to look at issues that people were not, that senators weren't that focused on, partly because there was more scope as a staff person to actually do something. Uh, and I, I was, you know, following the Iran-Iraq war, which, uh, partly because I trained as a historian, you know, it seemed to me as a, it was a devastating conflict, uh, you know, twice as long as World War I, trench warfare. Uh, a million Iranians died, maybe half a million Iraqis died in the trenches. Use of poison gas by the, the Iraqis against the Iranians. And, and, and although a lot of people's attitude was great, let them both kill each other. Uh, you know, first from a humanitarian point of view, the people who were actually dying weren't the leaders. Uh, and secondly, uh, you know, war always has unintended consequences. So, uh, I just, uh, made a couple of, uh, uh, staff staff visits, because this is what the committee does, uh, to uh, Iraq during the Iran-Iraq War. Was that your first time in in Iraq? It was, 1984. Uh, The first time was in Baghdad, met all the top leaders except Saddam, and then um, my colleagues, I wanted to go to Basra, which was at the front line, but uh, uh, they really wanted to go to Mosul, so we went up to Mosul, and then on the way back, we drove through uh, Kurdistan. I, I hadn't even quite focused on where it was, so we ended up in Erbil, uh, and then we were uh, met up with a sheikh who uh, was a contact of the um, previous head of the U.S. interest section. We didn't even have diplomatic relations at that time. Took us up into the mountains, and you know, I thought, well, this is kind of an interesting place. But you know, that wasn't. It was a, a what a struck pretty, you about it as as interesting at that time? Well, it, uh, first, it, it's it's physically interesting um, because uh, uh, all of Iraq is is flat. Uh, but well, except for Kurdistan, which is up in the mountains. Uh, and we went uh, uh, first to uh, Erbil, which was a small, low town. Uh, today, it's <laughs> it's unrecognizable as a, with skyscrapers and looking something like Dubai. But from there, went up uh, to a resort called Saladin. And then beyond that, 
to a, a town called Shaklawa. Uh, and in, in Shaklawa, you, you actually had um, uh, Kurdish fighters going up and down the streets. Now, these, I think, were ones who were temporarily loyal to Saddam, but it, it didn't feel like the rest of Iraq where there was a kind of, you know, a regimented uniformity in worship of Saddam. And you, you felt, I mean, you could feel the tension there uh, and you could sense that the, the, the fighters, you know, men in their uh, baggy, Kurdish baggy pants, cummerbunds, turbans, uh, that they, they, they were, um, that Iraq was not fully in charge. Uh, and of course, I knew something about the history of the Kurds and the and Barzani and the previous rebellions. But again, that was interesting. It made me intrigued about going back to Kurdistan, but it wasn't really decisive. What was decisive was three years later, uh, 1987, uh, the Democrats had taken con- uh, control of the U.S. Senate. And um, uh, the, the first set of hearings they had uh, which I had organized, was on why it was a bad idea to be selling U.S. weapons to Khomeini. This was the Iran-Contra scandal, and mm-hmm. we weren't looking at the scandal part of it. We were looking at the strategy. Right Now, fundamentally, it was the, the, what the senators were interested in was scoring political points against the Reagan administration. But the I was the person organizing this, and the Iraqi That's interesting. ambassador. So, 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 just to stop there for a second, you what you wanted to do was explain why it was a bad idea, um, not just illegal, but just like strategically not wise yeah. to to you know use slush funds to to uh, uh, to, to to support the Khomeini side. Well, it, what we were doing actually, we weren't using slush funds. We were selling American weapons to the Iranians, right. and that was generating the slush funds right. that were then used to fund the Contras. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that, uh, that was the Iran Contra affair. But but yeah. but the, you know the, the whole point of this was to say, you know what a, uh, what a disaster it would be if Iraq lost the war. We would enable Iran to take over Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, funny thing that that's <laughs> actually what's now happened. But anyhow, George W. Um, Bush accomplished that. Uh, you know, twenty years later. Um, exactly. So, so it, in any event, the Iraqi ambassador, a guy named Nizar Hamdoun, uh, followed these hearings and knew of my role. And so he imagined that I was very, must be very pro-Iraq rather than understanding that this was really a case of the senators wishing to score points against Reagan to demonstrate uh, how, um, you know, how foolish uh, the administration had been. So he said to me, you, you need to come, you should come back to Iraq and you can go any place in the country you want. Uh, and so I, I got authorization to make another trip, started in Kuwait. It's fascinating. Went to Basra. It was on the heaviest day of shelling of the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, you know, there was extraordinary carnage in the hospital, uh, which I visited, and then up through places that have become very familiar to Americans, Nasiriyah, Najaf, Karbala, Baghdad, saw the leaders. And then after a couple of days in Baghdad, I'd said to Nizar, I want to go to Suleimania, which I basically had seen on the map uh, as, a, as a Kurdish city relatively close to the Iranian border. Well, we, we set off with a guy named Haywood Rankin, who was the head of the political section, just the two of us. He spoke fluent Arabic uh, and we, in a, uh, 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 a Ford SUV. And we, when we got to the first checkpoint between the Arab part of Iraq and the Kurdish part. Uh, first, we were held for an hour or so. They couldn't believe we had permission to get go through, but we did. And so eventually they let us through. They gave us a uh, an armed escort front and aft of the uh, included, uh, you know, 10 men with uh, uh, helmets and anti-aircraft guns. Uh, and as we passed by, we, we had very detailed maps, we began to realize that the, the, the places on the maps just weren't there. Uh, and going a little further in, you could see then what was happening, which is that the towns and villages in, in this part of Kurdistan were being destroyed. You, you, on one side of the road, you would see abandoned buildings. On the other side, you'd see bulldoze, where bulldozers had, been, had destroyed them. Uh, and then all these places where villages should be, there were just piles of stones. They were taking – they'd taken down um, – uh, they de-electrified the area, so you, the, the electric poles would be there, but the wire was gone. Uh, and this turned out to be part of uh, what became known as the Anfal campaign, or the Kurdish genocide. Uh, and it involved the systematic destruction of almost every village in Kurdistan, ultimately more than 5,000. Uh, 
and then later involved the use of chemical weapons and deportations. Uh, so I, 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 I saw all of this, and, and I, I put this in the report, which was published, although it wasn't a huge part of the report because much of it dealt again with the Iran-Iraq war. But then this uh, Kurdish-American surgeon uh, read it uh, and got in touch with me. This was, of course, Dr. Najmaldeen Karim, later the governor of Kirkuk. Uh, and he had had an interesting background because he had been the personal physician to Mullah Mustafa Barzani, the Kurdish leaders of an uprising in the 70s, when that had collapsed, uh, partly betrayed by Henry Kissinger and the Shah of Iran. He had gone into exile in Iran, Barzani, and, and then to the U.S. And Dr. Karim, as a young well, medical student or freshly qualified doctor, had accompanied him. But then he had requalified as a doctor in the U.S. He had become a neurosurgeon, and he was in uh, George Washington Hospital on the 30th of March when Reagan and uh, James Brady were shot. And he was part of the team that, re that worked on the two men, and as a neurosurgeon, he looked after Brady and would go brief Reagan and tell him about the Kurds. And he kind of became a one-man volunteer lobby for this very obscure people. He, and so when seems he, he had a, like a captive audience, literally, with uh, President Reagan, it would seem, at, at the time. It, it, it would, but it didn't do a bit of good, <laughs> because, uh, as I'll explain in a minute. But um, he, uh, uh, you know, he, but he, then he began to look out for things, and he, he noticed my report. He got in touch. He introduced me to the various Kurdish leaders, and you know, they, they were very engaging people. And to be honest, they were also just very grateful for somebody who cared and, and, and paid attention. And, you know, when you're working in government and, and uh, people appreciate what you're doing, you, you become more engaged, more interested. And, 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 it, 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 the, and so that, that was really the beginning of my relationship uh, with the Kurds. Uh, but it, the next year, this was 87, the next year, 88, Iraq began to use chemical weapons extensively against the Kurds. So one of the attacks was on a, a, a city um, uh, called Halabsha, where uh, 5,000 people died. And, and this was photographed because it was close to the Iranian border and Iranian uh, television and uh, film crews and photographers came in. Uh, but the Reagan administration, which had by now embarrassed over having sold arms to Iran, had shifted to supporting Iraq in the Iran-Iraq war including even providing intelligence that enabled the Iraqis to target Iranian troops with poison gas. It didn't want to have a, a big controversy about the use of chemical weapons on civilians, so it basically lied and, and, and argued that uh, Iran was responsible for the attack or both sides were. It couldn't be determined. Um, and so while there was outrage over it, uh, the outrage was limited. But then the Iran-Iraq war ended on August 20th, 88, and on August 25th, there was another series of chemical weapons attack, not close to the Iranian border, but close to the Turkish and Syrian borders. And uh, I was home in Vermont uh, when <laughs> I read a, a story in the New York Times about uh, uh, refugees crossing the border and into Turkey saying they'd been used, they'd been attacked by chemical weapons. Well, since this was not close to Iran, and since it was after the Iran-Iraq war and ended, it could only be uh, uh, Saddam Hussein. So I went back to Washington. I saw the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, Claiborne Pell, and I said, Iraq, I think, is committing genocide against the Kurds. And I, you know, I put this in the context of the destroyed villages and what the Kurds have been telling me about what went on. And, and you and used the word genocide in your conversation with Senator Pell? Absolutely. Uh, 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 first, I knew that, that he would respond to that because his father actually had been the head of the War Crimes Commission in the Second World War and had used the, uh, uh, and, and had you know, wanted to take tougher action on the Holocaust. And he had ended up being fired by Roosevelt. Hmm. Um, but so th this was a, a, something to which Pell personally uh, very much responded. Uh, and so he, uh, he asked me what I thought I should do. I said, well, let's at least we can do is introduce a bill imposing sanctions on Iraq uh, for the use of chemical weapons and, and for genocide. And he agreed. Uh, and so, uh, and, but the committee was about to meet, so he wanted to get it done before the meeting of the committee. So I, I produced a bill in about an hour, and I tried to think of a, of a, of a title for it. Uh, and then it came to me, I'll call it the Prevention of Genocide Act of 1988. And it basically 
cut off USA to Iraq, we were providing about $700 million a year in, in uh, credits. It uh, uh, prohibited the importation of Iraqi oil. It required the U.S. to oppose loans to Iraq and uh, in, in uh, in the um, international financial institutions. And it prohibited the export of, uh, of anything that required an export license, uh, which uh, basically included sensitive technology. Well, I, I brought it to Pell. He glanced at it, signed on it, and then he turned to Jesse Helms, this very conservative Republican from North Carolina, and showed it to him. And Jesse, uh, for all his flaws, uh, from my point of view, is a good liberal Democrat, but he had a humanitarian streak, and he signed on to it. And then I went around. I got Robert Byrd onto it, the Senate Majority Leader, uh, Al Gore, who was concerned about chemical weapons, and, and a few others. And with working with Byrd's people, we got it through the Senate in a day, which was, you know, if you imagine yeah. uh, comprehensive sanctions in a day. I, I, the truth is, I think nobody looked beyond the title. At, at this I, time, I have, can, can I just ask, like, while you were doing this, I mean, how heavy a weight did you feel? that you had to carry on behalf of, you know, the Kurdish people who had no real representative in Washington. I mean, at this point, you seem to be their, their man in, in Washington. I, I, you know, I, 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 I felt that genocide was taking place. Something terrible was taking place that it seemed an awful lot like genocide and nobody was doing anything. And I thought there are things that I can do at this point. I'd become a pretty, knowledgeable and effective staffer. I knew how to get things done and I knew what kind of things you could. But uh, actually, uh, I, I didn't even, I didn't talk to any Kurds at this point. This was all, you know, something from my home in Vermont. Remember, this is before the internet and the cell phone uh, where I came up with the idea and, and just being in my office and dictating a bill to my secretary and, and getting it introduced and then doing the mechanics of getting it passed. Um, I don't know that I felt, uh, uh, you know, a, a burden because it, you know, really wasn't my responsibility. But I felt that it was urgent to do something. I mean, that that I couldn't just sit and be passive when something needed to be done. Um, like why? And, why and, not? So why, like, why, where does that urge come from? Do you think? Well, it's the way I've always been, uh, and what I've always tried to do is to find ways to be effective in, in, in doing it. I think lots of people feel outrage, but the, the trick is to then think of, of uh, how, how you can devise an effective course of action or strategy to, to deal with it. Um, I, I mean, why? Because I, I actually knew something about the Kurds. I actually was one of the few people who had ever been to Iraqi Kurdistan. Uh, There's the few uh, Americans uh, because uh, I cared about genocide and mass murder, and I had had an early experience that, with can, dealing with Cambodia when I was working for the committee because the chairman cared. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think most of all, it was because I thought there was something. You know, I I knew something, and I thought there was something that could be done, and I could figure out something that would be effective to do. And so this bill got overwhelming support, bipartisan support in the Senate, yet I presume it, it sort of failed when it hit the uh, Oval Office. Well, it, it, the, the story is a little more complicated. First, it passed the Senate unanimously. Uh, it has to be said that, you know, uh, there's a procedure in the Senate. It's called hotlining the bill. They read the title. Anybody object? The bill was called the Prevention of Genocide Act of 1988. It had the the chairman and the and a you know liberal Democrat and a right wing Republican as co sponsors. You know there, there was nobody to object, uh, but I realized it would ha have problems in the House of Representatives and would, was going to be opposed by the Reagan administration. So I I said to Senator Pell, you know we've just accused Iraq of genocide. I think I should go out and prove it, and he agreed. So the, the I, I recruited a, uh, a a young staffer on the committee. Who actually worked on European issues? A guy named Chris Van Hollen. Oh, uh, I'll we'll uh, recognize to, his name later. I would imagine <laughs> we will. And so he—he's he he a member of Congress now. We should say for people who don't know, he's a U.S. senator from Maryland. A U.S. senator, yeah, right, yeah, former he, he congressman from Maryland. Uh, yeah, that became yeah, senator yeah. from Maryland. Yeah. So, so Chris made the arrangements, and off we went. We flew to Diyarbakir in eastern Turkey, 
drove down to the border and we spent four days literally going along the entire length of the Iraq-Turkey border. Um, at one point, we, we encountered Iraqi soldiers. We, one night, we slept out in the open in a, in a, in a Kur- Turkish-Kurdish village on, the, on rocks and with grape leaves covering us. But at various points along this border were, were, the, were tens of thousands of refugees who had fled. And we were looking initially for physical evidence of the use of chemical weapons. And we only, we only found one boy who had mustard gas burns. But everybody was an eyewitness to the attacks. And people from the same, there were 49 villages that we were able to document had been attacked. And people from the same village had ended up in different places along the Turkish border. Again, this is before cell phones, before internet. And so we could match up accounts from the same people in one part of Turkey and somebody else maybe uh, 50 miles away in another part of Turkey along the border, but who had come from the same village about the attack and those accounts matched up. The other thing is that there were about 65,000 refugees. Now, we didn't interview them all, but everybody that we talked to, including people at random, women and children whom we spoke to separately, they're all eyewitnesses to the attack. So the evidence was overwhelming that, in fact, Iraq had used chemical weapons. The thing we couldn't figure out was why couldn't we find physical evidence? And then we began to realize that this was like uh, Sherlock Holmes's famous dog that didn't bark. None of these people had conventional wounds. There was nobody who who had been shot, um, uh, nobody with shrapnel or bomb, hurt by a bomb. Uh, uh, So, you know, and these these were people who had been pretty tough people. So, you know, what had happened? It was clearly it wasn't a conventional attack that had forced them to, to leave. And also, there was a good reason why we couldn't find anybody who had been injured, because what was used mostly was was uh, nerve gas. In the case of nerve gas, you either uh, uh, inhale it or it's on your skin and you die, or you, you're, you're upwind from where the, it lands and you are not affected and you live. So we, we had survivors who were all eyewitnesses to the attack, but they, they, weren't, they didn't have any evidence of the attack because if they had, they'd be dead. Hmm. So it, it, the, we were quite convinced and, and we thought the evidence was overwhelming. In fact, the Reagan administration agreed that uh, uh, Iraqi used chemical weapons. They did it on the basis of intercepts of the Iraqi pilot pilots. Uh, so they knew all along. Yes. Yeah. Nonetheless, they opposed sanctions. They said it was premature even to cut off U.S. aid to Iraq. And while we got a bunker bill through the House because all the special interests that did business to Iraq, in Iraq, discovered what was in the bill, and so they watered down the House bill. The Reagan administration was able to derail it. Now, the irony of all this is that at the time that Iraq was actually gassing, that Saddam was actually gassing his own people, uh, even cutting off U.S. aid was too extreme a response. Fifteen years later, the fact that Saddam had gassed his people in 1988 was a justification for uh, the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Yeah. And you know what? It was the same people. Colin Powell was the national security advisor. Dick Cheney was in Congress and later became the secretary of defense. And so, uh, and, and many of the others who had opposed uh, sanctions in 88 when it was actually happening, or even cutting off aid, were then the architects of the war in 2003. Can can I ask a sort of a different set of questions in in, in the last few minutes we have uh, about growing up uh, as you did the child of a famous public intellectual you know a liberal icon an economist uh, who was an advisor to several presidents I mean did did that experience or how did that experience determine or shape your um, career path and and your decision to sort of enter public service. Well, my 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 brother James, who's uh, an economist, uh, his response to the question of uh, how, how was it to to you know grow up as the son of John Kenneth Galbraith, he'd say, "Well, you know, I can't really say because I never grew up as the son of anybody else." <laughs> and 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 that you know that's a, a, a you know a, a bit true. I mean, I you know what, what I think I realize most people would have found you know really quite extraordinary. Uh, that was just the way it was, and and that and that's how a child sees the world. But we, cer- you know, we certainly uh, 
our dinner conversations were always about, almost always about public affairs and politics. Uh, you know, there were a, a range of, of, of guests from uh, Adlai Stevenson and, and Senator Kennedy, that is John F. Kennedy, uh, uh, t- uh, to, you know, George McGovern and Gene McCarthy, uh, candidates for president, uh, uh, and, you know, and, and lots of other public intellectuals. And, and this just seemed like the, 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 you know, what was, again, what was normal. Uh, and so, uh, certainly I thought, uh, being in, in public life, I mean, that, that is what one does. Uh, and, and it, it was the way to, way to make a, a, a contribution. So, uh, I'm, I'm sure that background, uh, um, you know, very much, um, influenced my, my choices, uh, but, you know, not in a in in a in a, in a not not in a or in a conscious way. It was just the environment where I was. That was kind of what one did. Is there like a particularly heated or interesting sort of dinner table conversation you can recall? Well, uh, when I became a teenager and and uh, the Vietnam War was raging, uh, uh, my father was friends with Henry Kissinger, and and I considered him to be a war criminal <laughs> for having. Uh, 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 you know, orchestrated the invasion of Vietnam, of, of sorry, the invasion of Cambodia in 1970, which just destroyed the country, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, led to the Khmer Rouge and everything else. So we, we would have uh, quite heated debates about that. Uh, although my father was, it was a person who, um, organized the, you know, one of the, one of the original people to oppose the Vietnam war actually, uh, as Kennedy's ambassador to India, Kennedy had nonetheless sent him to Vietnam to get a contrary view, and he had said, um, "You know, the, the 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 problem is that you have a corrupt and ineffective government. Uh, we don't have a partner in our counterinsurgency, and it won't work." And and Kennedy had actually listened to him as opposed to what he was getting from the generals and the um, and the hawks in the Democratic foreign policy establishment. And I suspect if Kennedy had lived, uh, we would not have had that war. So that's interesting. Your, your father was friends with Henry Kissinger, even though your father was very famously sort of an anti-war person. Uh, well, their friendship went back to the 1950s while Kissinger was still at Harvard. Ah, okay. Okay. So they're just... And, mm-hmm. and, and my father also believed, uh, and I understand this now, but I didn't then, he believed that there was value to having a... Uh, a connection into the administration and you know that th- th- this was somebody he could talk to about Vietnam rather than just being on the outside as, as far as I was concerned at that time uh, you know Nixon and the administration was almost the personification of evil um so I, I we didn't get into a lot of of uh, your career uh, we, we sort of talked a lot about it Curtis which is great which is fascinating and, and very important but I, I am interested to learn how uh, and maybe one last question on on the Kurdistan question: How the publication of Samantha Power's book, and which you know really venerated you as someone who you know was an upstander to genocide, both in uh, Kurdistan and also your your interventions in Croatia as ambassador there, did that like affect your work at all? Having that like a Pulitzer Prize winning work kind of profile you in a way? I I don't think so. Uh, I mean, after all, the the book described things that had already taken place um and 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 uh, but uh, of course um you know i obviously appreciated the 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 words uh uh but no i i mean you know i think it's um, i think it's a good book not just about me but about the other people who were uh mm-hmm. who tried to take on genocide I think the the one thing I would say about I mean Samantha sort of portrays all, all these people as uh, you know a, a noble crusaders and a uh, uh, you know who get so passionate that they that that they don't they, they're not successful but in, and 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 that they're somehow punished for it but the reality is that for me anyhow from the it was the the standing doing the right thing on Kurdistan is the thing that actually got me the notice that led me to being appointed as ambassador to Croatia, uh, where, where I was able, in fact, to, to do something that uh, almost no uh, uh, ambassador ever does, which is to uh, negotiate, write, and actually sign a peace agreement that ended the war. And how was it that you got the call uh, to become U.S. ambassador to Croatia? Uh well, so Al Gore was the, of course, had become the vice president, uh, and he was somebody who was a co-sponsor of the Prevention of Genocide Act. He had, he had followed closely what I had done, 
uh, and uh, he, he, I think he was of the view that what was needed for in, in, in the Balkans was somebody who uh, was going to be committed and tough. And uh, uh, so that's, I think, why they asked me to do it. From from that experience in, in Croatia, you got the call. Al Gore uh, sort of arranged or, or sort of su- suggested you to become ambassador to Croatia. What was your like immediate priority? I, I was one of the people who was a hawk on on Bosnia. The Bos this this is ninety three when I arrived in Croatia, but the Bosnia War had broken out in ninety two. Uh, I was working for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, and actually had led a mission that um, uh, documented the ethnic cleansing of uh, in Bosnia. In fact, I think uh, my report was the first time that word was used in, in a, the official U.S. government uh, context. Uh, so and that was another reason, of course, that I was uh, uh, asked to be ambassador. But uh, and, and Clinton had in, in when he had run for president, he had uh, attacked Bush for doing nothing in the face of, uh, of a genocide. Uh, as to what was going on in Bosnia. But when he came into office, the situation had deteriorated. And in 92, it was a war between Serbia against Croatia and against Bosnia. By 93, it had become a three-way war. Um, That is to say, uh, Serbia against the Croats and the Bosnians, the Bosnians against the Serbs and the Croats. Uh, And so uh, it it seemed like an absolutely impossible situation as uh, uh, Warren Christopher said, uh, and this was the title of Samantha Power's book, A Problem from Hell. And so my, my, my first focus as ambassador was to, was to do two things. One was whatever I could to, to try to end the war between the uh, Croats and the Muslims, or now known as Bosniaks in Bosnia, uh, because you know, there, were, you, there was nothing that could be done as long as it was a three-way war. So that was a, a focus of my diplomatic efforts. And then to portray what was happening in my reporting back to Washington as dramatically as possible to try to get the U.S. to 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 be willing to intervene. And, and you know, I did that in the reporting and the uh, telephone calls I made and the interactions I had with visitors. Do, do you remember uh, so a moment no, where you felt you were absolutely successful, where you actually got Washington to notice? I, I think there were a, a number of, of points, but but perhaps uh, the, the very first one was um, – uh, uh, was this one. Uh, I, I, basically, the embassy in Zagreb also handled all of Bosnia because, of course, Sarajevo was under siege and, and diplomats couldn't get in and out. And our, the fellow who was ambassador in, in Bosnia actually resided in Vienna. Uh, so I got a report from my uh, DART team, Disaster Assistance Relief Team, about conditions in, in Sarajevo. Uh, and what what had happened was that uh, the, the Serbs had turned off the water, they uh, uh, turned off the electricity, uh, and now they had turned off the gas. And a lot of people in Sarajevo lived in high-rise apartments. Uh, and so uh, without electricity, water, or gas, uh, they there was no way to have any sanitation and no way to get water. So they would have to get water from puddles, which were polluted by you know, uh, uh, by by um, human waste that was coming out of because there was no functioning uh, sanitation system, and so the report talked about and 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 that now they couldn't boil the water because there was no gas. Mm. So the report talked about this huge humanitarian disaster. You know, beyond everything else, the shelling, sniper alley, and all of that. And so uh, uh, there was a, a fairly standard cable. Um, but the Tim Knight, the, the person who had done it, he said to me, you know, what the joke is that's going around Sarajevo? I said, no. He said, well, what they say is, what's the difference between Sarajevo and Auschwitz? At least, answer, at least in Auschwitz, they had gas. Well, it was pretty sensitive yeah. uh, a, 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 a joke, but, it, you know, there was a certain bitterness to it. So I led the cable with that and huh. then the rest of the description. Well, the end result of that was that the the cable was forwarded right up to President Clinton, and he happened to be in Japan for a uh, G7 summit, uh, and uh, there he issued an ultimatum to the Serbs who turned back on the gas, huh. uh, although there were some people who were a little nervous about having used that. Uh, but yeah, so that was one of the first times I got attention. And- Obviously. 
you know, the, 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 the bigger time was I, I was the negotiator of the Croatia peace agreement, which was known as the air dude agreement. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I got support and, uh, uh, for doing that. And ultimately it was successful. Uh, well, Peter, I, I should let you go, but thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else you'd want to plug before I let you go? I'll definitely uh, refer people to your piece in the New York Review of Books. Anything else we should look at well, for you in the near future? No, I, I, I think the the you know the important thing now is that uh, we have a, a people in Iraqi Kurdistan who have been our allies and friends who have created a uh, uh, you know who are, who are very uh, uh, pro Western and created a, no, a flawed democracy, but a democracy nonetheless, who have been attacked by uh, people who are terrorists and uh, allies of Iran. And the Trump administration, days after uh, uh, decertifying the Iran nuclear deal, is basically on the same side as Iran. It is an example of the utter incoherence of uh, U.S. foreign policy these days. Uh, Well, Peter, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Uh, Well, great talking to you, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Peter. That's one of the ones that I think could have gone on for, for a long time if we had endless amounts of time. But uh, thank you all. Uh, thank you to everyone who is signing up to become a premium supporter of the show. As a reminder, if you are a premium supporter of the show, you can receive my daily news clips service, Dawn's Digest. This is a selection hand curated by me of the top and most relevant daily global news delivered to your inbox every morning morning. Uh, You can also uh, access bonus episodes and get my special knowledge pack that includes the top social media accounts to follow if you're a global affairs nerd, if you become a premium subscriber to the show, and I hope you do. Thank you all. See you soon. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.